We ask that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear uh, as we meditate on it here together this morning. I do pray that you would help us to focus, that we can learn and understand and apply the meaning to our busy lives. And we need your help to do this. We ask that you would align our desires with yours. So we lift up this time and pray that it would be towards those ends for your glory and our extreme joy. Amen. Have you ever thought that a particular situation that you're in was absolutely hopeless? You ever been in a situation like that? Uh, circumstance where you thought, you know, there is no way this is going to end well. I can remember a time like that. <clears throat> I was catching a ride to school with my older sister. Uh, we were coming near the country bus stop, and so there were a bunch of kids walking on um, in our direction on the right side of the road. I'm sitting in the passenger seat, and my sister had appropriately slowed down but as soon as our car came right alongside that main group of kids, a boy about six years old just darted right out into the street. Uh, it was so sudden, so untelegraphed, that we hit him before my sister had a chance to even hit the brakes. Uh, hit him with that right front, and so he flipped up onto the hood, hit the hood, and then rolled off limp onto the shoulder of the road on the right side. <clears throat> I can still remember images of him hitting the, the windshield in front of me and that instant dread I felt made my heart just sank to my feet. I was certain there was no way this was going to, to end well. Devastating. His life over. <clears throat> essentially our lives over. And it was awful. So you can imagine my elation and my surprise and my joy when the boy stood right up, brushed himself off, and looked at me right through the passenger window, same exact height with these enormous wide as saucer eyes, like, what just happened? Yes, you just got hit by a car and survived. Uh, one of the happiest moments of my life, uh, because of the, the comparison of the two situations. One moment, my life is over, my sister's life is over, his life is over, the next moment, everything's okay, just relief, crazy joy. That's a bit of what I think is described in our passage this morning. We're presented with a scenario that's eternally devastating. The picture is bleak. But because of Christ's work on the cross, the entire scene turns from, from one of just absolute ruin and devastation to one of exuberant, over-the-top celebration. Uh, we see that Christ's name is lifted high, and once again we learn of his extreme and utter value. He's worthy of our love. He's worthy of our zealous preeminent and supreme love. And so to encourage us to worship and to rightly serve so worthy of a Savior, we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And we're going to see there how Jesus' accomplishments render him worthy to control and to execute the consummation of his kingdom. Christ alone is deserving to control all of history and to usher in the new age. And because of that reality, he is worthy of nothing less than our preeminent love. 
For one last time, then, we are going to be asking ourselves the question, do you, do I, do we love King Jesus truly, firstly, supremely, rightly, preeminently? Now, by way of reminder, the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John somewhere around 95 A.D., while John was serving an exile sentence on the island of Patmos. The Roman emperor at the time was this guy named Domitian, and his reign would be remembered as one that was extremely cruel uh, toward Christians. So then, this was a time then when believers were under pressure and suffering from uh, various kinds of persecution. In chapter 1, we see Jesus appears to John, and he tells him to write what he sees. He's to write what things that are, and then things that will be. And then in chapters 2 and 3, we see the things that are. And so Jesus dictates to John seven letters to seven actual churches. That passage that Amos read was one of those letters, the letter and specifically to the church in Ephesus. And we've talked about that uh, several times in this series. And then starting in chapter 4, John begins to relay the vision he received concerning the things that will be. So we went from the things that are to the things that will be. A voice like a trumpet told John in Revelation 4.1, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So John is then ushered into the throne room of God, and the scene that he describes there is glorious. There's thunder, lightning, power, uh, uh, jewels, gems. The scene looks very similar to what is described in Isaiah chapter 6, if you remember that. There in chapter 4, there are four living creatures who day and night never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And the 24 elders prostrate themselves before his glory and, and worship the one seated on the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Things might seem out of control. It might seem that Domitian is reigning supreme, unchecked, unrivaled, all-powerful. But that's only an appearance. The reality is that God is ruling from his throne. At that very moment, he's being worshipped day and night. And it's his power that is supreme. It's his power that is unchecked. His power that is unrivaled. And then in chapter 5, our text this morning, we see Christ enter the scene. We're going to see his glory, we're going to see his might, his rule over all of history. And this is meant to encourage the saints in their victory. And it's meant to en encourage them that they have the right object of their worship. Uh, but I think this vision is also meant to poignantly highlight the utter foolishness of abandoning one's love for Christ. Jesus is, he, he's simply just too worthy. He's too high. He is the eternal king and he has conquered and they too will conquer, but only as they remain in his love, as all his true people will. So as you look at this text, then we're going to see two situations and then responses to each of those situations. One is a hypothetical devastation. Uh, the other is a glorious reality. I think Revelation 5 might actually be my favorite passage in all of Scripture. Uh, I think that this would be echoed from several of you as well, if we're allowed to have a favorite passage of Scripture. It's all God's word. It's all glorious. But this one is just so, so wonderful. 
And we're only going to be able to scratch the surface this morning, but hopefully our time here will ignite a flame in your soul to further mine the depths of, this rich, of its riches and, and to study it and maybe meditate, it, meditate on it longer and in more depth this afternoon. So let's go ahead and look at the first scene, the first situation we meet in Revelation 5, 1 through 3. We'll call it the, the hypothetical devastation of a none found worthy possibility. How's that for a Puritan title? The hypothetical devastation of a none found worthy possibility. Starting in verse 1 then, while John's vision still has him at the mighty and awesome throne room of God, right? That's still where we're at. He writes, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, his back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. So the focus of John's vision now shifts from the continual and passionate praise of the Almighty to this scroll that the Lord now holds in his hand. If this were a movie, the camera would be zooming in for a close-up of the scroll, and the music would go soft and serious. The scroll is in God's right hand, right, signifying that it's under the, the powerful and, and sovereign control of the Lord. It has writing within and on the back, which lets us know that, that it's full, bursting with, with content, information. And it's sealed with seven seals. Bible scholar G.K. Bill notes how in ancient Roman law, legal wills had ne nearly that same description. For context, he explains where, and I'm quoting him, sometimes summarized on the back, which could be the case here. And they had to be witnessed and sealed by seven witnesses. Only on the death of the testator, uh, the one who made the will, could a will be unsealed and the legal promise of the inheritance be executed. And only a trustworthy executor would then put the will into legal effect. So it would seem then that this scroll is likened to this kind of a will. But if this is a will, then it, we see uh, that it's an extremely important will. We know that the book of Revelation is saturated with all these allusions, references to the book of Daniel. In Daniel 12, 4, for example, we read, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, the scroll, until the time of the end. And it would seem that this is that same scroll, that same book, sealed up for the end, and John's vision is of that time of the end. We could say then that this book is eschatologically important. It has end times significance. And then this worship in the throne room is almost rudely shattered by the mighty voice of a heralding angel. In ancient days, there's no TV, no internet. So if a city had an important message for their citizens, they would employ a herald, someone with a loud, booming voice to proclaim the message to the people. And so here... Uh, we see it's a mighty angel proclaiming to the four corners of the earth and to all locations everywhere in the universe and beyond, spiritual realm and the physical realm, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one anywhere in all those categories is found worthy. No being, angelic or otherwise, not even this mighty angel is found worthy. And to be worthy 
isn't talking about might or power, but about character. No one anywhere was found deserving to break the seals and to look. There is none found worthy to view the contents and so execute the will. That's the situation. No one is found worthy. Then we see John's response in verse 4. He says, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. The original language here conveys the idea that John wept and wept, or we could say that he wailed. He's wailing because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. He's crying because this means that the will is not going to be executed. Which makes us ask, what's so important about this will? What's so important about this scroll? What's so important about this book? Why would John wail at the realization that no one was found worthy to break its seal and look? Well, if we keep reading Revelation chapter 6, and further we learn what happens when the scroll is finally opened. So if the scroll is not open, then the rest of the book of Revelation doesn't happen. All those things don't happen. That's why John is wailing. In Jim's excellent commentary on Revelation, he has summarized some of the key events that would not happen if the scroll is left unopened. He writes in, in 5.9, Jesus would not be worshipped as worthy to open the scroll, and he would not be worshipped as the world's redeemer. In 6.10, the martyrs of the faith would not be avenged. In 8.4, the prayers of the saints would go unanswered. In 9.15, God's appointed plan would not come to pass. In 11.15, the kingdom of the world would not become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. In chapters 16 through 18, the wicked would not be judged. In chapters 19 and 20, Jesus would not come back. And then in 21 and 22, God would not reign in glory in the new heavens and the new earth. So John wails because he realizes that if no one can open the scroll and execute its contents, then the promises of Scripture essentially would not come to pass. All right, that's why he weeps and weeps. That's why he wails. It's a, it's a devastating realization. Something similar to that moment when I thought that this boy had just lost his life. The hope of the saints dashed to pieces. It means there's going to be no vindication of the righteous. It means that wickedness will never be brought to justice. Evil is just going to reign. Goodness is not going to prevail. All things will not be made new. So William Mounts adds that John wept at the prospect of an indefinite postponement of God's final and decisive action. The universe itself was morally incapable of affecting its own destiny. In short, uh, the hopes of all of redemptive history disappear in flash. There will be no consummation. So John wails. Now imagine with me for a moment a world without biblical hope, a world without the sure expectation, the confident expectation of the consummation. What would a world without Jesus as we know him be like? What would that be like for us? Can you even imagine it? Think about that for a minute. Can you imagine what it would be like and its implications to your life? Can you imagine reading the headlines from that perspective? Tax on Christians all over the world would just 
keep on going with no hope of a, a future outcome. Uh, the, the evil ideology of terrorists and so forth would never be checked, never be called to account. Be no justice, no true justice. Uh, we would read of all these political scandals and all these things that we're so sick and tired of. And we wouldn't be able to talk about one day the hope of the risen king reigning on his throne of power forever. No hope of reconciliation with God. No hope of perfection. I think those two realizations would be the most devastating. We'd never see Christ face to face because we would never reach perfection. We'd be forced to battle sin forever. It'd be awful. And 1 Corinthians 15, 19 would then be true of us if in Christ we have hope in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. That would be true of us. Can you imagine it? And if you can imagine it, would you weep? Would you wail? You see, only those who long for Christ's return would weep. Only those who love righteousness and so are clinging to his promises would be devastated. Only those who love Christ, who have experienced his first love for them, only those people would weep. So would you weep at the possibility of a no-Jesus reality? Do you love King Jesus? If so, weep no more. And so here is the second situation in response. And we'll call this the, the actual praise and worship of the one found worthy reality. Right? The actual praise and worship of the one found worthy reality. Verse 5 continues the narrative and says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Praise the Lord. There's hope. Jesus is on the scene. Weep no more, wail no more. Behold, the victorious Christ. One of the elders tells John to stop wailing because one worthy, one deserving has, has appeared. And he's described to John as the lion of the tribe of Judah. So this is an allusion to Genesis 49.9. If you remember, we just went over this uh, a few weeks ago in one of Jim's sermons where Jacob prophesies of the future prominence of the glory of the tribe of Judah, right? Right before he, he, he dies. And he describes Judah as a powerful lion, Messianic hopes then are tied to that tribe. He's also described here as the root of David. Isaiah 11.1 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Remember, Jesse is, is David's dad. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. An ideal king, one who, who is also tied to the suffering servant of Isaiah. That character will come from the line of David and the line of Judah. And so both of these descriptions point to Jesus' messianic identity. That's who this is, the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And it's this one who is conquered. In Revelation 2 and 3, each of the seven churches was promised future blessings if they conquered. Each of those letters to the churches ends that way with a promise for their conquering. If they conquered, this is what they received. Now here we see the saints Messiah King, he has conquered. And so they're conquering. Their future 
eschatological hope is tied to the success of this king. If they are to conquer, then their fate must be tied to his through faith in him. And he conquered with the purpose that he would open the scroll and its seven seals. One has been found worthy. He is powerful and messianically royal. Jesus is worthy. He alone is deserving. John continues to describe the scene, and I think what happens next is absolutely astonishing. And verse 6 reads, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. Just talking about the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lion of David, all these high kingly terms, and now we're talking about a lamb standing as though it has been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So after hearing this description from the elder, John looks and he sees, surprisingly, not a powerful lion, not a, a, a manly king, but a lamb. And not just a lamb, the word here describes a little lamb, something more like a baby lamb. And its appearance is such that it reveals it has been previously slaughtered, destroyed, slain. Now, I picture, you know, in my mind, a a bloodied, beat-up lamb. But now it's standing alive and apparently moving closer to the throne. John Svon and, and his writings of describing Jesus as a lamb. In John 1.29, for example, John the Baptist cries out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then we see Jesus described as a lamb 28 times in book of Revelation. That lamb in imagery is taken from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, as we know, lambs were sacrificed to atone for sins. Probably the most prominent sacrificial lamb of the Old Testament is the Passover lamb. If you remember during the Passover, this lamb without blemish was to be slaughtered and its blood was covered over the, the doorpost. If that took place, if the, the lamb was slain and its blood smeared all over the doorpost, then the residents in that house were spared. Uh, they were rescued from certain and sure death. And obviously, that pointed to Jesus' future work on the cross and his substitutionary atonement for his people. The language used here seems to be borrowed from prophetic texts like Isaiah 53.7 that Aaron read earlier. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, talking about the suffering servant Isaiah, who we know is Jesus. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. This is the one. This is the king of kings. This is, kings, this is that servant, the long-awaited Messiah. <clears throat> and so this lamb imagery helps us see that the one who is worthy is the one who sacrificed his life in order to purchase a people for God, as we learn in verse 9. Uh, as G.K. Beale points out, that the nation's of this world, you know, they, they flaunt their power with symbols of creatures that crush and destroy their enemies. I think this is an interesting observation. So Russia has the bear. France has the tiger. The U.S. has the bald eagle. But the kingdom of God is best symbolized by a slain baby lamb. Right? The power of the kingdom of God is best portrayed by a symbol that highlights the sacrificial death of the high king of Judah on behalf of his people. Isn't that beautiful? 
Put that on our flag. Put that on our shields. And the fact that this slaughtered lamb is alive is proof of his extreme power. He was slain, but now he's alive. He was slaughtered, but yet he lives. His glory and perfection and worthiness were proven in the resurrection. We see he's also depicted as having seven horns, which points to this perfect power. He's omnipotent. He also has seven eyes, which we learn here are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. This probably means that he's full of the Holy Spirit. Also probably means that he shares the, the omniscient attributes of the Father and the Spirit. He knows all things. I think this is attesting, again, to his deity. And also, though, that this lamb's power is beyond measure. He is undoubtedly and unmistakably worthy. And again, if this were a movie, the camera's no longer on the scroll, but it's on this slaughtered lamb. And we're still in the throne room of God, uh, where the, the previous scene depicted this passionate and zealous worship of God. But now the camera is following this lamb's every movement. And so verse 7, And the lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of him, who is seated on the throne. So with all this drama building up to this moment, John weeping and wailing and the identity of, of this one who is found worthy, this moment is a bit of a letdown. The lamb just goes over, takes a scroll from the powerful control of the father, no fight, no struggle. Father's fine with this. The lamb is that worthy. Jesus is that deserving. That's not the climax. Here comes the best part of the movie. There's the climax. This is the part that we can put on replay, watch over and over again. When we think about all that's going on here, meditate on it, it's, this part is off the chart. charts amazing. It's shocking. The land takes the scroll from the right hand of the powerful one seated firmly on a heavenly throne, one whose glory is described in chapter 4 with images of jasper, carnelian, rainbows, emeralds, thunder and lightning, torches, fire, all of this glory. You couldn't describe it in human terms any, any more glorious. And here's what happens next. Verse 8. <clears throat> and when the Lamb had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What in the world just happened? But we're still basking in the glory of the throne room from chapter 4. The Lamb appears takes a scroll, and as soon as he does, the 24 elders and the four living creatures, those who were previously worshiping God, the one seated on the throne, saying in Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. They're now saying of the Lamb, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. And then further down, if you look in verse 12, the voice of many angels, myriads and myriads, thousands upon thousands, now join in the worship of the Lamb. Right? It's like the heavens suddenly just explode. The unimaginable glory described in chapter 4 just gets even more unimaginable. And they all cry out, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth 
and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. If we didn't know better, this would be scandalous. This, this worship explosion is taking place right in the very midst, in the center of God's throne room, in the throne room of the one who warned in Isaiah 42, 8 and all over the Old Testament, I am Yahweh, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, period. So this is astonishing. But the Father's fine with this, amazingly so. Jesus is worthy. He is deserving. This is one of the most glorious and bold statements of, of the deity of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. Amazing. This is a glorious text for Christians. It, it exalts our king as high as he could be exalted in words. The four living creatures are some kind of prominent angels. The 24 elders may represent the, the total corpus of all true believers. But both groups fall prostrate before the lamb. The harps and, and golden bowls of incense allude to the worship of the temple periods described throughout the Old Testament. And the prayers of the saints are a part of this. Prayer is an act of worship. Prayer declares that the sovereignty, right, the, the ability of God to do something. To do anything, it declares the compassion and care and kindness. It, it declares the trustworthy nature of our God. When we pray, we need to understand that prayer is worship. And we see that, that they sing a new song. New songs are spoken of uh, several times throughout the Old Testament. One example, Psalm 33, 1 says, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. So these new songs are new, not just compared to old, like in chronology. They're also new in that they are an original score written to commemorate a fresh and original act of God. So as Jim points out again in his commentary, he mentions how he believes that we're going to be singing new songs for all of eternity because God is going to continue to amaze us. He is infinite. So there's going to be these new scores needing to be written for all of, of eternity. So we're in for some wonderful surprises. And then in verse 9, we see the reason why the Lamb is so worthy. Because you were slain, and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Isn't that glorious? And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. At least in this passage, at this moment, the reason we're given for the Lamb's worthiness, the reason why the Lamb is so deserving, is because of what he accomplished on the cross. He's worthy because of his substitutionary atonement his death for us, his death on our behalf, in our stead. But, but why? Why does the lamb receive this response in the throne room of heaven? Not all who are worshiping, right? you got myriads and myriads, thousands of thousands, angels worshiping him, and, they, and, and the angels don't benefit directly like we do from his substitutionary atonement. 
So, so why is this? Well, I think it goes back to why John was weeping when none worthy was found. The rest of redemptive history will now take place. This highly glorifies our king and theirs. Right? The not yet of the kingdom will come. We're not going to be stuck in this already not yet state forever. Evil is going to be brought to justice. The righteous will be vindicated. The devastation brought about by sin, the results of the curse are going to be overturned. All things that were not right are going to be made right. The entire world is going to now be this lavish temple garden where our God is rightly praised. When Jesus takes the scroll here, it symbolizes all of history, past, present, and future, are under the sovereign control of the Lamb. All the eschatological hopes, all the end times hopes of the righteous are going to be fulfilled. History is marching toward the consummation. It's a sure thing. There is an executor of the will, and in time, he will execute that will. He's going to unleash the beginning of the end. Righteousness is going to reign. The wicked will be judged. Our king will be eternally worshipped. All are going to see his glory. That's why this crazy celebration, it is right. It's like, it's like the angels who have been witnessing this drama play out in our vernacular for thousands of years. All of this blasphemy against the king, against their God, finally is going to be rectified. And that devastation now turns to this crazy celebration because this is right. Finally, at last. You see, these first century churches, they were, they were battered. They were, they were beaten up, oppressed. In many ways, they were, they were like us. They didn't look like much in this already not yet state of Christ's kingdom. They are weak, insignificant. Not many of them are rich. Not many were wise. Not many were learned like we see described in 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, they didn't look anything like the 1 Peter 2, 9 description of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. They were that. That was true of them. That, that is their true identity. That is our true identity. But no one was living in real time like royalty. The world certainly didn't treat them like princes and princesses, just like they're not treating us like royalty. <clears throat> you should hear some of the things that, that people say of Denny Burke. They're not treating him like a king, like royalty, someone who they need to, 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 to gain his favor. They should, because he is a, a prince of the high king. So these churches were suffering on account of Christ. Uh, the church in Laodicea was about to get spit out of Christ's mouth for being neither cold nor hot. The church in, in Philadelphia had little power. Uh, the church in Sardis was about to die. The church in Thyatira tolerated sexual immorality. Members from the church in Pergamon had already been martyred. The, the Smyrna church was under some kind of severe trial. And we talked about the church in Ephesus. None of them are described as mighty and powerful. The apostles had all been killed, the exception being John, and he was exiled on some barren island off the coast of Turkey somewhere for the sake of Christ. It's possible that these churches thought that they'd been abandoned by God. Seems their, their, their faith was weak. They felt like they were hanging by a thread. Have you ever felt that way? Am I the only one who has prayed that prayer 
Lord, help my unbelief. Have you ever looked around at the church and thought, really, God? This is it? This is all you got? Is this really where you're working out your plan of redemption of history in our day and age? It doesn't appear very powerful. It doesn't even look particularly righteous or holy. It seems kind of weak. It doesn't seem very strong. So God gave the church this book, this vision. Because you might feel that way at times, but your feelings are not an accurate reflection of reality. The reality is the glory of God in chapter 4 and the worthiness of the Lamb in chapter 5. And all of history is in the sovereign hand of the one who bought you with his blood. So lift up your head. Strengthen those weak and feeble knees our king has conquered. And so all who are in Christ have conquered and will conquer. Which is why the possibility of abandoning our first love is so devastating and so insane. Jesus is a slaughtered lamb because of his sacrificial work on your behalf. The lamb is worthy. He is deserving of your worship. And to worship him is to love him. And so those who don't worship him, those who don't love him, those who abandon this first love will not conquer with him. That's why the warning in Revelation 2, that's why this unveiled glory in Revelation 5. If you are in Christ, you have the right object of your worship. The world might laugh at you. They might ridicule you. But here in Revelation 5, you've been given a glimpse of reality. This is what is real. Not your feelings, not the appearance of things that you see. This is what is real. Hold fast. Don't abandon your first love. And all God's true people are going to hear the voice of their shepherd and they're going to follow him. They'll heed the warning. And so they'll remember and they'll repent, as we've been saying and been getting that from Ephesians or Revelation 2 and the letter to the church at Ephesus. All right, so they're going to remember. As we said, remembering begins with beholding Christ, as Denny taught us so wonderfully from 2 Corinthians 3.18. It starts there. And that's what we've tried to do this morning. That has been the number one objective, to behold Christ. We've sought to look at Christ in all of the reality of his glory. We don't see this. We don't look at nature and see this. The world's not telling us this. We look at this text to behold God's glory. And as we do that, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we are being transformed into that same image. So remembering starts here because love is a response to Christ's person and his work. And we're also to remember from where we have fallen. We're to recall former times in our Christian lives when when God made clear to us the glory of the Lamb here in chapter 5 to some degree. 
We're to remember when our, when our hearts responded like Peter's in Luke 5.8 as he was confronted with the, with the glory of Jesus and he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. And I would submit to you that we know more of Christ's glory having studied this text now. This is approaching this text. We're, we're on holy ground. We're to remember when we understood that very clearly and it just took our breath away. We're to remember times when our, when our hearts were so full of joy at the reality of Christ slain for me. And, and we responded to that truth with prayers of gratitude and thanksgiving beyond ourselves that it's not our performance that saves us. Hallelujah. But his, the worthy ones. And so we presented these golden bowls of incense where we said with the psalmist in 141.2, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. Would I remember when we bowed prostrate? I hope we've done that physically in our prayer rooms, at least in our hearts, in wonder and awe that, that he would die for us, a filthy sinner, on our behalf, in our, in our place. That when he was hanging on the cross, it wasn't some facade, but it actually really happened. There was a day when Jesus, as a human, was hanging on the cross in pain, bleeding on my behalf, when we realized that that was actually something that happened. And so we responded to this glorious grace and redemption like David does in Psalm 63 when he's in the wilderness of Judah. Because your steadfast love is better than life. Because of your covenantal love for me, proven by what Christ did on the cross. Even while I was still a sinner, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. He is that worthy. This passage proves he is, he's deserving of, of nothing less than an all-out, reckless, wise abandonment for him. Our very lives. And so if our love has grown cold, if we kind of do an inventory of our own soul, if we've abandoned love we had at first... If our soul has been straying from the straight and narrow path and, and, and whatever would entail with that, this first love, this reactionary love, then I hope that this text for you acts like smelling salts and so brings us to our senses and causes us to repent. This is reality. Don't abandon your first love. That's... that's insanity. And then we're to do the first works. And in our text this morning, the first works are, I believe, the responses of the living creatures and the 24 elders. Their response is the right and, and true response to such a great king in all of his glory. So I believe their response to the Lamb's victory is, is exemplary for us. So just briefly... First, we see that they bow to him. Right? They lay prostrate before him. Bowing is an act of homage. It's an act of humility. It's an act of submission. It's something that you do in a king's presence who is worthy, and you are his servant. That's what it's conveying. It's conveying that, that he is my master, and I exist to do his bidding. It, it's an outward expression of an internal recognition that my desire is to obey his every word. His every word. So again, if you have been straying and you haven't desired to obey his every word, I hope that this rekindles 
that desire and that in your heart at least, if not physically, you bow before him. Offer up your life to him. We're to submit our lives to Christ's glory and his ways. And then second, we see that they praise him with their lips. Our lips were designed to sing his praises, not to curse him, not to slander others, to gossip about others, not to brag about self, which is kind of shameful in light of all his glory here, but to boast of him. And then third, they're to offer up the prayers of the saints. We're to praise him this way. We're to honor him this way. We're to regularly thank him for his work. We're to, we're to praise him for his mercy and his grace through prayer. We're, and we should know that our prayers are acts of worship. It's worth doing. When we sing praises to hear, him here this morning, it's not just for our benefit that we can sing truths and be reminded of the gospel He's worthy of us to say those things about him, to brag about him. And then last, we, we see uh, that we're to celebrate redemption and the hope of the consummation regularly. That the recognition of the Lamb's accomplishments, what happened? The heavenly courts went nuts. Why should our response to this knowledge and reality be anything less? I'd submit to you that, that we have even more reason than the angels to passionately worship Jesus. So our lives should be these living explosions of worship for the slaughtered lamb, this lion of the tribe of Judah, the descendant of David. As Paul puts it in Romans 12, 1, we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices. That's what we're to do, which is our spiritual act of worship. We're to offer up our hearts, souls, and minds, everything that is available to us, that it's at our, that our fingertips, that is our resources. We're to offer up all that is us to him, this awesome king. He's that worthy. Christ died for our sins. He died our death, the death we should have died. He experienced spiritual death, separation from the Father on our behalf, and he was raised three days later. That's true. That happened. And his power and holiness and might were all proven in that one historical act. And this slain lamb is going to come again. One more time. And this time, he's going to come with the clouds and every eye will see him. And even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Brothers and sisters, love Jesus Christ zealously. Love him as he deserves to be loved as we've seen. He is the lawful sovereign over all redemptive history. Love him in joyful response to everything that he's done for you. And in light of his glorious nature that we've seen in Revelation 5, it's the only rational response. It's the only response that makes sense. Don't love other things supremely. Don't abandon your first love. Don't be duped by the world to chase after temporal things. Everything that we've talked about is reality. Don't be ruled by your feelings. Be ruled by the truth. Love Christ. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for this text that declares to us reality. I pray, Lord, that we would be owned by your word, that we would be ruled by your word, that our lives would be governed by this text and all of your glorious precepts. Strengthen us, help our unbelief. I pray, Lord, that we would dedicate our lives to Christ and his kingdom, knowing that when he returns, we will not have regretted taking a bold side for this king. So I pray for my brothers and sisters here who are experiencing hardship because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that they would have strength and courage to go against the flow, that they wouldn't abandon their first love. Use this text to rekindle that. For your glory, the exaltation of our wonderful king, and for our extreme and certain joy. Amen.